This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek Starships Collection. Get the Enterprise D for only $4.95 when you sign up today at st-starships.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 214, Imaginary Friend. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week on Mission Blog... Blog, sorry. uh, Mission Log. Hang on, I'll do it Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Nobody can hear you. What do you mean? You're not real. You know, I always suspected that. Mm Mm-hmm. Each week on Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for messages, morals, ideas, and ideals, and seeing whether the episode stands the test of time. This week, Imaginary Friend, or as I like to call it, You People. Actually, this is the one where young Clara Sutter has a pretend friend come to life with a negative side effect or two. In a moment, John will bring us trivia, but first, tons of ships off the starboard bow, John. I like how you phrased that, right? Tiny ships for a big galaxy. It's the official Star Trek Starships collection. Here's how you do it. You subscribe to the official Star Trek Starships collection, and you get two ships a month from the original series through the Kelvin timeline and beyond. (laughs) It's not just the ships you get, though. You also get a magazine filled with production notes, design notes, and in-universe information about the ship. Plus... You get a digital download of the magazine, which not only gives you access to even more information online, it lets you keep the physical magazine as close to new as possible. And you get all of that for 20 bucks per ship, two ships a month, two magazines a month, two digital magazines a month, 40 bucks a month. Plus, you get extra surprises the longer you stay subscribed. And you can start your subscription at a crazy low price. Get the Enterprise 1701D, home to such imaginary friends as Minuet... Isabella, Minuet, and of course, Minuet. Get the Enterprise D and its accompanying magazine for $4.95 to try it out. And can I just point out something that we've actually not talked about uh, quite as much lately as we used to? Sure. We love these ships. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, when I have my imaginary ship battles with my imaginary crew, um, I reach for the Eagle Moss Starship Collection. (laughs) Well, of course you do. Why would you not? But I mean, right. we, we haven't talked as much lately about just like, seriously, the joy that I get from my uh, Klingon bird of prey. Yeah. I mean, they really, I mean, we, we've been talking a lot about the, you know, the talking points and the quick points and all that stuff. Uh, I still, these things just sit on my desk facing me, like in, in everything that I do. And, uh, and I just look up and I, especially the bird of prey, but, but all of the ships that they send, I just absolutely, uh, just absolutely love them. I think it would be a different thing if if it was a sort of like a toy, you know, right. because there have been a lot of toy spaceships that have come out over the years, as long as Star Trek has been around. But the, these sort of they look very professional. Like, you know, when you see somebody's corporate desk and like, you know, you're, you're at the Boeing factory and they got the nice, you know, airplane model on the desk and you go, wow, that that's a really nice study of this thing that they that's what these look like. They look super professional, really nice system elegant way to express your fandom and the longer you say subscribe you'll have a million of them (laughs) (laughs) that's true one million you will need a bigger house at some point 
So the address to participate in that, to, to figure out why it is that Ken and I love our teeny tiny starships so much, you can get started too at st-starships.com slash mission log. st-starships.com slash mission log. Trying it out not only supports this show, it makes you the commander of your own personal armada. That address again is st-starships.com slash mission log. And a big thanks to Eagle Moss for sponsoring this week's show. Uh, I want to tell people how to get in touch with us before you tell people about all of the trivia that ever was ever. All of it. All of it. This is it. Mm -hmm. This is the last week, sadly, of trivia. And strap in because (laughs) this is like a, like for from now on podcast. Uh, Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And John, in the middle of that, I was thinking, maybe we save all of the trivia ever for next week. And today we just do Mm. trivia for Imaginary Friend. Ah, okay. All right. I'll have to cut it down by about three and a half hours. So... Today's episode, Imaginary Friend, was written by Jean-Louise Mathias, Ronald Wilkerson, and Richard Flegel. Now, out of this group of contributors, uh, Jean-Louise had a total of five stories produced on Next Gen, and she has two more coming up on Voyager. These are her only professional writing credits. Ronald Wilkerson, similar thing, though he has one more Trek credit and then goes on to write some for Stargate SG-1. He and Gene Louise work together, so no surprise there that they would cross over on the uh, TNG episodes that they worked on. And finally, Richard Flegel is credited as well in his only next-gen credit here, but he has written other screenplays, novels, and plays, and has been a longtime associate dean at USC in their College of Letters. Now, the teleplay for this episode is by Edith Swinson and Brannon Braga. Edith had some solid credits before adding NextGen to her resume. She had written numerous Tales from the Dark Side, Monsters, then went on to Charmed. Are you noticing a pattern here? Well, once the original drafts for this episode had been batted around and the final assignment was given to Brannon Braga, it was Brannon who wanted to bring in a creepy element. The story was originally to have featured a friendly alien, a benevolent little child, kind of along the lines of, like, E.T. or something. But he really wanted to play up the scary, so Edith Swenson brought in the same kind of sensibility with her background. The episode was directed by Gabrielle Beaumont. Uh, We met British-born, highly experienced TV director Gabrielle with her first Next Gen episode. Oh, it had a—it was a two-word title— uh, booby trap. Ah, okay. That was it. Booby trap, you say? Yeah, it was. Uh, booby trap was her first episode. Booby trap was. Uh huh. Sure was. Okay, okay. And most recently, we saw her work in Disaster. She also directed Suddenly Human, another episode which prominently featured a child guest star. Now, uh, Ken, remember that time we went through the Mar Oscura Nebula, and it also did weird things to the Enterprise, like making walls disappear and cutting crew members in half when they got embedded in the floor? Well, that Nebula footage was reused here, colored a little differently, and sometimes the film flipped around just to make it look that much more different. And let's Wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute, though. Wasn't that also the Matara Nebula? 
Uh, yes, it was. Yeah, it was the Mutara okay. Nebula. So we, we got a, a double dose. So you're going to reference you're going to reference a TNG episode, but not the greatest Star Trek movie of all time. Next to Galaxy Quest. Really? <laughs> well, well, hang on. There, there there were new effects also created for uh, for. Uh, the the Mario Oscura Nebula and some new effects for this one as well. But yes, the original Nebula footage, that very first, the the proto Nebula footage, uh, as it were, for Star Trek, originates all the way back to the Wrath of Khan. And let's see, we have another reuse here. We have the Arboretum set, which uh, we first saw in Data's Day. And Ken, you might recall that I got really excited when Wesley had a Franklin Mint model of the Enterprise on his desk in the first duty, right? <laughs> yes. Big, big moment for me as a, as a collector. Well, I, I might have actually gotten more excited to spot a model of Maria from Metropolis on Clara's nightstand. So it, it kind of goes by quickly, but but if you see it, it's just right back there, plain as day. And there's the robot Maria from Metropolis, and another all-time favorite movie. So we have a lot of guest stars here to talk about. Of course, we welcome back Brian Bonsalas Alexander for uh, a little scene. We have uh, Patty Yasutake as Alyssa Ogawa. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg was almost not in this episode. The scenes with her and Ten Forward with Data were originally written for Deanna Troy and Dr. Crusher, then Guinan and Troy. The final script changes were made just a few days before filming those moments. And now on to the guest stars who are new. Shay Astar is Isabella. You've probably seen Shay before. She's worked pretty consistently since the early 90s. Uh, she had a recurring role on China Beach and then on The Good Life and Third Rock from the Sun. Uh, she's made guest appearances on Cold Case, Shameless, ER, Quantum Leap, among others. We also have Jeff Allen as Daniel Sutter. Now, Jeff had some bit parts on the TV series Petroselli in the 70s, but he found more steady roles in the 80s after appearing in Remo Williams and guest roles on shows like The Facts of Life, St. Elsewhere, Santa Barbara, L.A. Law, and yes, Moonlighting. Yes. <laughs> he was in one of the Alien Nation TV movies, and you'll also find him in an upcoming episode of Voyager. And he was one of the actors in Star Trek Borg, the CD-ROM game, which I can never get to work right in my computer. We also have Noli Thornton as Clara Sutter. Noli was eight years old when she shot this episode of TNG. And already she had appeared on a few TV shows, and she had a small part in Albert Brooks's Defending Your Life. She had the title role in the TV miniseries Heidi, starring Jason Robards, and she had a recurring role on Beverly Hills 90210. After a few more jobs, she stepped away from professional acting by 1998, but we will see her again in a different role in an episode of Deep Space Nine. The thing to remember about Isabella, she is actual size, though she seems much bigger to Clara. Clara has never known anybody like her she is actual size, as she flies away. Prologue. A young girl, Clara, is talking with Counselor Troy about her friend Isabella. She's the daughter of career Starfleet guy Ensign Sutter. Clara's the daughter, not Isabella. Isabella is imaginary, and Ensign Sutter is worried about that. Troy sees no reason to be, though. The Sutters have moved from ship to ship to ship. Isabella has provided a constant companion for Clara. Give her time. She'll make real friends, and likely leave her imaginary world behind. Meanwhile, the Enterprise is checking out FGC-47, a nebula formed around a neutron star. It'll provide lots of science to science. And yet with all this sciencing, no one notices the freeloading energy being that just tinkerbelled its way onto the ship. 
It checks out people and places and things. It ends up in the Arboretum where Clara Sutter is helping plant nasturtiums. It pokes through the plants, passes through Clara's brain, and once out of her brain takes the human form of Isabella, Clara's imaginary friend. Act 1. Isabella is real, which is weird to Clara. Though the new kid looks exactly the way Clara described her to Counselor Troy, Clara's never actually seen Isabella before. Isabella wants to explore the Enterprise. Clara says they shouldn't, but Isabella, easily a minute and a half old, is awesome at the whole peer pressure thing. And off they go. In engineering, Jordy, Data, and Ensign Sutter are talking over what Nebula FGC-47 should actually be called when the Enterprise seems to hit something. Something that is, of course, not there. Except it must be. It's slowing down the Enterprise. Jordy's checking things out and nearly trips over Clara Sutter. She tells her father that Isabella, who is nowhere in sight, wanted to see engineering, though he says now's really not the time. In the hall, Clara asks Isabella why she keeps disappearing. Isabella says since the grown-ups don't believe she exists, she has to be invisible when they're around. She then tells Clara to wait a moment, disappears, and fixes whatever was slowing down the Enterprise. Task complete, Isabella and Clara walk off, hand in hand. Act 2. So, yeah. Jordy and Data tell Picard and Riker, We didn't hit something, but we did. And we didn't fix anything, but it's fixed. They decide to stay in the vicinity and investigate. Clara and Isabella are discussing the nature of their relationship. Isabella seems uncertain on this whole best friend thing. What it is, how it works, whether everyone has one. Since Clara made up Isabella, she says their friendship came easy. Now, they're racing to a place with lots of people. What they didn't expect was to bump into Lieutenant Commander Worf, which means Isabella didn't have time to disappear. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Go to your quarters. Of course, the second Worf is gone. They continue the way they were going. In engineering, science! And childhood. Sutter asked Jordy what it was like growing up moving from post to post to post with parents in Starfleet. Jordy says kids are tough. As long as they know you love them, they can handle whatever life throws at them. The place Clara decides to take Isabella, the place with lots of people, is Ten Ford. Of course, with lots of grown-ups around, Isabella is invisible again. Guinan explains that Ten Ford is usually just for adults, but since she brought Isabella, Clara and Isabella can be her guest. Guinan gets the whole imaginary friend thing. She used to have one, a Tarkasian razor beast. Sounds scary to Clara, and Guinan agrees. It was scary, but it was also a good friend. Somewhere along the way, Guinan must have dropped a dime on Clara because Counselor Troy comes in and is not surprised at all to find an eight-year-old sitting at the bar in Ten Ford. Leaving the bar, Troy explains that Ten Ford is for grown-ups. Clara says she knows that, but Isabella wanted to see it. Troy says Clara can't let Isabella get her in trouble. So Troy gives the invisible Isabella a talking to. It's not nice to get Clara in trouble. Next time you want to go someplace, ask an adult. Clara's invisible friend has Clara relay a message back to Troy. You better leave us alone. So, Troy has some new concerns for Ensign Sutter. This Isabella thing is taking an ugly turn. I'd like to get Clara involved with friends who are, you know, not imaginary. Also, I'd like you to get more involved. Let her know she has someone she can talk to who's, you know, not imaginary. 
In the Sutter quarters, Isabella says she doesn't like grown-ups. Also, she's bored hanging out in the quarters. She'd like to see engineering again. Clara says they can't, and Isabella starts in again with the peer pressure. The exchange is interrupted by a chime at the door. Counselor Troy would like to take Clara to a ceramics class, and the invisible Isabella is not invited. When Troy and Clara leave, a visible Isabella is visibly angry. Her eyes turn from blue to red. So if you hadn't picked up that Isabella was creepy and scary, that ought to do it. Act 3. Moving further into the nebula, the Enterprise has hit something that's slowing it down again. Except again, there seems to be nothing there. Except there is. In engineering, Geordi and Sutter have found a way to change sensors to sense what's dragging the Enterprise. Sutter suspects it's a whole series of some sort of energy strands. If they do the sensor thing outside the ship, they should be able to see what they're up against. Or what's up against them. Riker says, do it up! In Clara's ceramics class, Oh good, Alexander's here. He's working on a cup for his father. At first, Clara's helping him, though Troy suggests Clara get some clay of her own. On the bridge, they've done the sensor thing, and holy cow, the Enterprise is surrounded on all sides and in every direction by the energy strands Sutter suspected was there. In her quarters, something's kind of bugging Troy. Like, knocking over a cup bugging her. Like, repeatedly doing that. It's odd. Back in ceramics, things seem to be going well with Alexander and Clara, though as soon as his back is turned, his cup is destroyed. Clara says it was Isabella, but Alexander sees no Isabella. It must have been Clara. Of course, it can't have been Clara who hit Alexander in the back of the head with a ball of clay, but we're already out of the classroom by the time that happens. Clara's back in the Arboretum, and there's Isabella. Clara is now completely freaked out by Isabella, and she should be. Isabella says she liked Clara and had planned to protect her when the others came to kill everyone. But now, she doesn't care. Also, she does the red-eye thing again. Act 4. It's going to take the Enterprise about 12 minutes to get out of the nebula, except it's going to take a lot longer than that. They keep hitting strands, which keep slowing them down. Troy and Guinan are talking over the Sutter situation when Ensign Sutter calls Troy to his quarters. Clara won't go into her room. She's now completely frightened by Isabella. She tells Troy that Isabella said, The others, being like Isabella, are going to come and kill everyone. Time to call it what it is. Troy tells Clara that her imaginary friend can't hurt anyone. Because she's, you know, imaginary. Clara says, Yeah, she used to be, but she's real now. I can see her. Troy suggests that she and Clara go into Clara's room to make sure it's safe. Of course it's not. After a condescending look around the room led by Troy, Isabella finally appears and sort of force punches Troy unconscious. Act 5. So, yeah, says Troy to Picard and Crusher and Sutter, this thing's real. Sutter tells the captain about the threats Isabella's been making, you know, about killing everybody. Come to think of it, says Warp, I saw Clara with the new girl two days ago. So there's been an alien on the ship for at least two days. Clara says she thinks she hurt Isabella's feelings. That she only turned mean when Clara started ignoring her. Picard says he hopes they can rely on Clara's help. Back on the bridge, the Enterprise is hitting more and more strands. The ship has to come to a stop. Or be destroyed. Also, remember that Tinkerbell thing from the prologue? Yeah, there's a whole swarm of those now. 
speeding off the energy in the Enterprise shields. Time to call in the big guns, by which I mean the little girl. Picard and the other adults accompany Clara to the Arboretum, the first place Isabella appeared. Isabella won't present herself this time, though when Clara says she's scared, Isabella finally does show up. She tells Picard that she's there to determine whether the Enterprise is a threat to her people. Also, boy, oh boy, is the Enterprise producing some tasty energy. Picard says he can make more energy. They needn't be destroyed. Though Isabella says they should be destroyed. Look how cruel they are to their children. And Picard gets it. The alien has seen everything through the eyes of a child. He explains, they're not being mean. They're helping the children grow. To survive growing up. They make rules for that. Clara will do the same when she has kids someday. Clara asks Isabella not to hurt them. If she still wants to be best friends, they can be. And with that, Isabella disappears, as do the energy strands that were holding the Enterprise. Picard has a parting gift for the beings in the nebula. An hour of pure, uncut energy. In her quarters, Clara sees Isabella one last time. Isabella apologizes for scaring Clara... She never had a friend before. Each says they hope they'll see each other again, which takes us to the end. Dude, Isabella literally is Clara's only friend. She's not her only friend, but she's a little <laughs> glowing friend. But really, she's not actually her friend, but she is. But she is. Yeah. yeah. But she is. Yeah. I see what you did there. It's, it's mm-hmm. cute. I've got every yeah. song that they've ever recorded in my head now. Yep. Yep. That's my little gift to you. That's Pro Call Harem, right? <laughs> right so yeah. so close so those close. guys will yeah. be big someday they might be giants you never maybe can. you never can tell all right so i got a question for you sure did you have an imaginary friend when you were a kid uh yeah his name is rod <laughs> <laughs> i love that people think we know him that's so i awesome. know right yeah. it's so weird yeah <laughs> I love that people think there is one. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, I, I did. Now, yeah. I don't remember much, but I, I remember talking to my grandmother about that imaginary friend. Really? Like, I just remember that that was a thing that happened. But hmm. I, I don't remember really any details. I mean, I must have been, what, you know, five? I, I, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't remember whether I had one or not. I honestly don't hmm. think I did, but my little brother, who is technically my half-brother, mm-hmm. is 10 years younger than I am. Okay. And so I distinctly remember his imaginary friend, hmm. which is kind of, and, and it kind of got me wondering, did we all have them and we just sort of forget them as time goes on? But I, I seriously, like, like you're saying, you remember talking to your grandmother about yours. I, hmm. I do not remember ever having an imaginary friend nor talking about one. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. My my little brother, wow. on the other hand, had a cowboy. He, okay. He yeah. went to the road. He went yeah. to the rodeo one time, and mm-hmm. he came back, and this cowboy rode in the car with them. Not really, as far as I know. Maybe he was an invisible cowboy. I can't say. But yeah, uh, Jim wow. was the was the cowboy's name. Um, I, I'll leave out his last name because he actually was a real rodeo cowboy. So I'm not gonna be all like, yeah, this this rodeo cowboy was hanging out with my little brother because it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> but but it was at the same time. I don't know. Like, it's, like I got nothing here. It was. I was just wondering if, like, if we all had them, and I've just forgotten mine, or if you know some people do and some people don't. Well, it's interesting. I've got some research uh, about imaginary friends that I'll talk about in the next segment. But uh, 
just to to kind of plant the idea here uh from what i've read mm-hmm. it seems like upwards of you know two-thirds of kids at one point or another have an imaginary friend now the the complexity that they take on you're, you're talking about a much smaller group of children who have very complex imaginary friends with you know growing to the extent of having literally like you know Imaginary friends that occupy imaginary towns where they have imaginary governments, where they have imaginary holidays, like it's incredibly complex. But one of the stories that I I read about was uh, a researcher talking about um, uh, a kid who, I guess, told a parent, you know, about his or her friend and the friend had a normal name, like, you know, Billy or whatever. And then it later became apparent that this was an imaginary friend that, you know, in talking to people at the school, that this kid didn't exist. But but one of the tip offs for that was that uh, this kid lived on a giraffe farm <laughs> and uh, mm. somewhere in the United States. And they assumed that, you know, probably near where they live for their school system, there was likely not a giraffe farm. Uh, yes, where they were. So that that was probably a good indication. But again, a, you know, very, very vivid imagination. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I got to figure and maybe you're going to maybe I'm blowing the thing you're going to talk about next segment I don't know but mm-hmm. I got to figure a lot of them are actually grown of once we start having thoughts in our heads mm-hmm. if we can't quite identify that's a thought that I'm having then it's like oh well I I I must be talking to somebody about that. Yeah. I better yeah. quick make somebody up. <laughs> right. <laughs> or else I'm just yeah. uh yeah, I'm a prophet. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk a little, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, some stuff in the episode here. I this is it is such a minor just blow off scene, but I have to say that I'm uncomfortable at how uncomfortable the conversation is between Dr. Crusher and Nurse Ogawa where Agawa mm-hmm. was talking about going on vacation with her man. I, yes. I, I don't know why it, it shouldn't be an uncomfortable conversation and I shouldn't be uncomfortable watching it, but Man, is it just uncomfortable. Like, they're trying yeah. to play it for humor. Yes. And it's not working. <laughs> yeah, no. No, it's not. I, I, I mean, you said it's an inconsequential scene, so inconsequential mm-hmm. that I left it out of the recap because, I mean, it yeah. really... It's something that's happening in the background while Tinkerbell is tinkering around the uh, ship, trying to figure out, mm-hmm. you know, where it's going to manifest. Um, and I guess maybe it tells us a bit more about Nurse Agawa, but I, I don't feel like it tells us... I mean, unless this is going to be a thing for her from now on, it mm-hmm. didn't really tell us anything that I cared to know about Nurse Agawa. Like, why is yeah. she being forced to talk about something she doesn't want to talk about in the <laughs> I workplace? Know. I know. Maybe it actually tells us more about Dr. Crusher than I want to yeah. know, come to think of it. Hey, lay off. <laughs> you know. exactly no seriously you need to yeah there's a you've been to holodeck four have you taken him to holodeck four it just yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. didn't feel right uh, for a moment there when the the glowing ball of energy uh becomes a flower i i wonder if it might have just thought it, it would stay like that for a while because it's really fast it's a flower and then it's not a flower and then poof it's gone and i just thought if it's there the flower it could just be like hey this is this is great i smell good people water me 
I got nothing else to worry about at all. And yeah. this ship is great. Carry on, guys. I'll invite everybody to come over here and be flowers. Here's the while. thing, though. Um, mm-hmm. It has been a long time since any kind of plant was able to take over the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're yeah. not at Omicron City 3 here, pal. We're, no. we're in the middle of a nebula. <laughs> and I think if they're going to feed off the ship's energy, they're going to have to find a more cunning disguise than a plant. Ah. Well, an arbor- arboretum might be a good place to do that. You, you got that's, light, you, know, you got all that stuff around. Yeah, you know. that's true. Plus, everybody does seem to go to the arboretum. Yeah, everybody. Yeah. yeah. Again, I mean, not to bring up the holodeck too much, but you got holodecks. Mm-hmm. You got at least four mm-hmm. holodecks. Mm-hmm. You've got observation right? lounges, but everybody's like, uh, but I want that like, like little tenth of an acre of grass. <laughs> Let, let's go there. Let's take a walk through the Arboretum. Let's take an incredibly slow walk through the Arboretum. Yeah. Because, seriously, you, you can cross the Arboretum in like three seconds, maybe five. Yeah. There is so much 47 in this episode. Yeah. So much 47. The name of the nebula, and it's the number in millions of plasma energy strands or something hanging out in that nebula. This is all the hmm. 47s everywhere. Um, introduction in this episode to a new prop, space mm. smocks. Yes. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, smocks. You yeah, think? They, they're space smocks. You they're think not so, really? just smocks. There was a uh, space yeah, fork. They're, they're, the, uh, the, the chocolate cake that Deanna wasn't eating, she was not eating it with a space fork. She was poking at it with a space fork. That's true. And, and Deanna used a space towel to clean up the hot chocolate mess. Her spacey hot chocolate, I would guess. <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah, we didn't get a good look at that <laughs> hot chocolate to see if it was well, spacey, but it's definitely a space towel, I can tell. You know, it's weird. In a time of... Uh, in a time of uh, Oh, replicators of plenty. And, you know, we've talked about sort of like the catalog store. We can just go in and punch up whatever. Kids are still making crappy things for their parents. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Look, I, <laughs> I, I, I feel bad. I felt bad when I jotted this down, and I feel yeah. bad as I'm about to say it. I did not. I did I, not. I'm not going to besmirch Alexander. I have a lot of sympathy for Alexander. I think he's a good no. kid in a bad nope. situation. Nope. But it took him two weeks to make an yeah. incomplete crappy cup. He needs to step up his game. <laughs> that is not the. That is not a cup made with honor. That is uh, no. It's made with plenty of honor. But I'm. I'm guessing. For that cup to have taken him two weeks, he has to be allowed to only work on it for three minutes at a time. <laughs> Every other day. And look, I I have, you know, some of the crappy stuff that I made for my mom when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And and it's not the highest quality. But I do know that it only took me an afternoon. And it was actually a little bit more complex than what... uh, than what Alexander was making for his dad there. I also couldn't mm-hmm. help thinking, and this is this is terrible, and you're usually the one who's really hard on Worf. And yeah. I'm not I'm yeah. not being hard on Worf in this. I just kinda I kinda wonder what Worf's reaction would have been had he actually been handed that cup. <laughs> and I'm not saying it would have been bad. It might have been great. It might have been wonderful. It might have been the perfect fatherly reaction. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to know, first of all, how he actually would have acted. And second, I'd really love to know what he was actually thinking. <laughs> when yeah, ended, right. I right. think Isabella actually did Alexander a world of favors in, in making sure that Worf was never handed that chalice. I think you're right. Although maybe, you know, as far as we know, it's going to be another two weeks, just day and night, Alexander <laughs> sitting in that room trying to make that cup. Uh, poor kid. Wow. Yeah. 
Well, hey, at least at the end of the episode, um, of all people, it's Picard who, who gets to give the speech about being sensitive to seeing the world from the child's point of view. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Picard who gives that speech, kind of. It's yeah. Picard. Yes, gives the speech. It yeah. is, but it, but it totally works. It totally works. Picard reasoned with a child. Well, so. a child who wasn't actually a child. They were just sort of like you know trapped in a child's body. Which yeah, plasma string. Yeah. Kind of got a figure is how Picard felt the whole time he was a child. I don't know that like you know <laughs> really uh, you know talking to an actual child. I don't think is necessarily his forte. But if he can talk to a child as an adult, then you know it's Picard all day long. Why? Why did they send Isabella over anyone else? How should Clara react? These things happen to other people. They do not happen at all, in fact. So, did you like this episode better when it was called The Child? Tell me the connection between the two, because I'm honestly having trouble seeing it. Sure. Well, a disembodied, glowing light being decides to manifest self as a human child in order to become a part of the Enterprise crew, at least for a little bit. Now, granted, in the child, that child was a little more benevolent and uh, caring and uh, had a, a relationship with Deanna. This time it was a, well, we don't know how old that being was, but uh, uh, potentially going to destroy the Enterprise. So now their their dispositions might have been a bit different, but I, I feel like kind of the the point of view had already been done, you know, disembodied, light, glowing thing, becoming a child. We learned something from it, and it learned something from us. Well, except Ian actually wanted to find out what it was like to be human. I mean, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Isabella was there more. I'm sorry, Ian was the child in the child. Right, uh, right. When for people who don't remember, that's the like thing that comes in. And, and impregnates, basically, Counselor Troy and grows up mm-hmm. as her kid over the course of like a day and a half, maybe two. Isabella was sent at, like basically as recon, right? Isabella is a bit more like the episode, which was the one with the proto-Vulcans? Uh, who, who Watches the Watchers. Who Watches the Watchers. Yeah. Isabella is more like that, right? Except, except more intrusive. We're not trying to be the proto-Vulcans when we go to that planet. We're just trying to study their, their society. Although mm-hmm. we're, not, we're not trying to figure out if they're going to be, you know, a threat to us. I mean, Isabella is really just there to assess risk, and then she finds um, resources that she can exploit. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's really what they come down to. So, I, I mean, I, I, I see the very beginning part of what you're saying. But yeah, I, yeah. But, I mean, that's yeah. almost like talking about any human. It's like, yeah, I like John better when he was called Gandhi. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't we all? How are they the same? Well, they yeah. were both born. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, you know offense, but yeah, you know, yeah. I sort of see yeah. what you're saying, but I they they're so different to me that they didn't strike me as uh, they didn't strike me as that similar at all. Hmm, really, it, it just kept gnawing away at the back of my mind when I was watching this. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, maybe because it, well, and that kind of comes to the end. Then just w- which, as a judgment call, I like better or found more intriguing. You know, yeah. So unfortunately, you know the the way we do our show, we, everything's kind of compressed, where we're watching you know week after week after week, and we don't have that separation of time. So the, yes. the child feels like it was almost yesterday, even though it's at the beginning of season two, and here we are quickly approaching the end of season five. My goodness. So uh, data is speaking right to my cold analytical 
skeptical heart, I'll, I'll uh, compress this quote a little bit. People try to find meaningful patterns and things that are essentially random, sometimes suggesting what they're thinking about at that particular moment. Besides, it's clearly a bunny rabbit. That was pretty great. <laughs> it was, you know, it was the perfect data humor. Yes, it was nice. It was. Yeah. It I, I, There were a couple of things. I mean, yes, there were one or two things about that that bothered me, like, does a nebula really change that fast? Because they're looking at the same thing and seeing the mm-hmm. different shapes. Mm-hmm. But as you say, maybe they're just looking at it and you know making their own shapes as they go. And this is another thing that I left out of the recap, kind of like the Nursagawa thing, because it mm-hmm. seemed inconsequential. Though perhaps it was a message to even the coldest, most analytical, and most skeptical heart, John. <laughs> hey! Uh, to, to hold on to the kind of wonder... Uh, that we'd have had as children kind of goes back to the question that you it's amazing to me that you actually I really do wonder now if I did have an imaginary friend it's amazing to me that you remember having an imaginary friend but you don't remember the friend himself or herself I didn't ask yeah the the majority of kids they they said that when people forget their imaginary friends it, it happens pretty quickly and they said that the the lifespan is about two years so that if you talk to a kid who had an imaginary friend and they're in the process of forgetting or, or losing that imaginary friend, give it about two years and most people won't remember. They won't even remember that they had one. Wow. Yeah. That is that is just so mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. So then what do you make of the fact that Guinan's like 200-something years old, right? Maybe more. She still has her imaginary friend. Yeah, does she? So here's the thing. Does she or did she? She says that she still does. When she's talking to Troy about it, it the indication is that she still talks to whatever yeah. kind of whatever kind of razor beast it was. Tarkasian? Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, you're good. Is that right? Wow. Yeah, I think you're right. It sounds yeah. close anyway. But yeah, <laughs> she says that she still talks to it. Because when she's talking to Clara, she puts everything in the past tense. I made sure that I went back and watched that. Yes. Again. But when she's talking to Troy, you're right. I I kept wondering what they were trying to indicate with that. It's the, the magical wonder that is Guinan. I mean, oh, sometimes yeah. that's really useful, and sometimes it's, it almost feels like filler. <laughs> right. That's I'm sorry. Is that, I, I apologize. Is that cold, analytical, and skeptical? It's, no, I think it's totally accurate. I right. mean, it, sometimes it is this filler. I mean, remember, they didn't know that they were going to have Guinan in this episode. So <laughs> then it true. feels like, well, we've got her. You know, Whoopi's schedule is open, so we'll just try to work in another moment. Hey, what if she had an imaginary friend and maybe still does? All right. (laughs) I wondered if Deanna should be doing a better job as an empath to figure out Clara's emotional state surrounding the imaginary friend. And, And maybe this is just a minor bone to pick with the episode, but... She says to Ensign Sutter that Clara might be lonely. She might be trying to work something out because they go from ship to ship and the life of a Starfleet officer, as we know, is very orphan-like, you know. Um, mm-hmm. but, but shouldn't she know? Shouldn't she be able to see exactly what's going on? Well, who wants to go to a counselor who's know-it-all, though? I mean, I think, I think we've actually, I believe we've actually talked about, I know we've talked about it with like some orders that are given and we've talked about it with some sort of like thought processes that people have to go through. Troy mm-hmm. has to lead Ensign Sutter to this moment. She can't. Yeah, yeah. Because if he comes in and, you know, she's basically like, you know, the all knowing, you know, 
whatever demigod of the ship. Oh, sure. Uh, then yeah. it just becomes a series of like uh, of, of steps that he has to follow, like a. I don't know, like like a like saying the Hail Mary or you know some kind of like oh just do this, just do this, just do this, and everything will be fine. He's got to sort of find his way through the whole thing, right? He's got to come to an understanding of it as opposed to just being handed a checklist of of you know do that and you're done. Sure, sure. Although it, it seems I don't, I don't know, he seems like he needs to be led a little bit, you know, like he's. He's not a bad father, but right. he's a little he's a little preoccupied with work and he's a little annoyed maybe that he's got to deal with this at home. I, I think maybe he could use a little bit of hand holding. It's one thing for Deanna to say, well, she might find it difficult to make friends. She might have, maybe Deanna needs to say, You've been traveling around a lot. She doesn't have any friends here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go do some stuff that involves some other kids. You know, yeah, I'm sure that Jordy will give you the time off. So, and the, but then so put the work on Ensign Sutter, but but maybe give him a little more a clear cut path as to uh, as to how to do it. See, actually, I, I honestly felt okay about the way she got him to that point, and I also felt okay. like she stepped up a lot when you know, I mean, when they first show up, it's like okay, well, I can see why this would bother you, but here's maybe why she's doing that. So maybe you try to get more involved, and then you know, we'll see how this whole thing plays out. When the thing plays out then to her, as far as anybody knows, imaginary friend, taking her to places that are either inappropriate or potentially dangerous, and also threatening her, you know, at that point, Troy thinks that there is something going on psychologically, and so she doesn't say, so, what do you think's going on? At that point, she steps in and says, okay, so... Here's what's going on, and here's what we're going to do. Right? I mean, so, I mean, there's a... I mean, I think she's not just trying to counsel Clara past whatever. She's... I mean, remember, she was doing family counselor with Worf and Alexander just uh, one or two episodes ago, a couple of episodes ago, I guess. Mm -hmm. So this isn't just about, you know, taking your kid and getting them fixed. It's about, you know, sort of growing a healthy, uh, a healthy, um, a healthy family unit. And so that you can't just you can't just hand dad something and say, here, this will fix it. I mean, you kind of have to get him involved as well, unless we're going back to, you know, the enterprise of the 1960s. In which case, <laughs> right, yeah. we're not even going to worry about how the kids are doing. We're just going to make them cry because that's better. And, uh, you know, hopefully some lawyer in a shower curtain doesn't come and ruin everything for everyone. Ah, that would be the worst. That yeah. would be the worst. Uh, yeah. And yet, at the same time, kind of the best. <laughs> I do think that Deanna makes a, a good point in talking to Guinan about her her worry. You know, the moment that you mentioned where she's got a space fork and she's just poking at that cake and we don't know if she's going to eat it or not. That's really... A lot of dramatic tension for that scene. But anyway, she's saying to Guinan that um, she's worried about maybe taking away that creativity from Clara. And I think that's a good it's a good, honest moment, because I'm sure that many parents have wondered the same thing. It's like, well, my my kid believes this kind of weird fantasy thing. and, And maybe it's time to to sort of disabuse them of that piece of fantasy but at the same time it's just a kid having fun where do you draw the line i think it's a you know good realistic moment for her you see all that kind of goes out the window though because we know that clara is you know for all intents and purposes being haunted or i mean she's being led around by this poltergeist or this energy being or this you know this alien or whatever it is Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I understand what you're saying and I understand, you know, her point of contention, but I honestly didn't even consider it that much because we know that there actually is a bad guy. Mm-hmm. I would mm-hmm. think, I mean, yeah, trying to get her to, 
like maybe in the ceramics class, she could make a she could make a sculpture of Clara or uh, Isabella, excuse me, or maybe she could write something about her or draw pictures of her or something like that. Which yeah. actually, come yeah. to think of it, didn't Deanna say, "Can you draw a picture for me?" Yep. And I think Clara said she could, and yet no crayons. So <laughs> hmm. right. she described her. Right. I know that. I mean, there might have been a way to. Yeah, I don't know. I honestly didn't get too hung up on that because I knew. I mean, it's been revealed to us early on that, yeah, no, this is real. Although I did still kind of wonder right up until they bumped into Worf. I mean, I guess oh, we really? saw the thing coming in, but I thought they might have played it mm-hmm. out a bit longer. I thought we might have actually still wondered. I thought it might have been a little bit more mind bleepery. I mean, once they mm-hmm. bump into Worf and he acknowledges both of them, uh, mm-hmm. then it's like, okay, so so there's going to be no mystery for us. <laughs> and in case there was mm-hmm. going to be any mystery for us, no, it's clear. Yeah, this is actually a thing. Um, I might have enjoyed the mind bleep pretty more, but that's just because, well, we can talk about that in a minute. Sure thing. Um, so I mentioned earlier uh, imaginary friends, the, the the idea of that being a psychological thing. So I wanted to look it up. I wanted to find out a little more. And, and having remembered watching this episode, and I'm glad you posed that question, did I have an imaginary friend? Yeah, and like I said, I can't remember much about it other than just That was the thing. I I remember a conversation with my grandmother talking about an imaginary friend, and that's about the extent of it. So I wanted to find out what does sort of modern psychology say about imaginary friends. So oddly enough, interestingly enough, there is a place at the University of Oregon under the direction of psychologist Marjorie Taylor called the Imagination Lab, and it is dedicated to studying imaginary friends, but more specifically, or more generally, I should say, child's imaginations. So what is it that makes the imagination of kids different? And I I thought that was just fascinating. This is a thing. And uh, Marjorie Taylor has been doing this for more than 30 years, making this her her life's work, and then the University of Oregon uh, uh, backing it. And some of the highlights of, of what I found in her research, if you Google her, Google the Imagination Lab, you'll, you'll find quite a lot. She's got a book called Imaginary Feelings, which uh, you can look up in your spare time. Um, so some of the things that I thought were interesting, this that, that she talked about. So uh, it had been considered that kids who have imaginary friends are more intelligent but she said that's actually not a thing, that, that imaginary friends run the gamut uh, with kids and all levels of intelligence, all backgrounds. And it's a you know pretty good chunk of those kids who do have imaginary friends. Um, and uh, there was a, a line here that I thought was really interesting that I mentioned earlier. Over the course of her research, Taylor has noticed that children who had imaginary friends as preschoolers sometimes move on to developing an entire imaginary world or paracosm. Worlds typically elaborate, entailing their own geography, transportation systems, governments, and holidays. Hmm. I thought that was fascinating. Just absolutely incredible. A typical age range is about three to eight years old. But sometimes it goes way beyond that, actually into teen years. Not as often, not as prevalent, but the, the, the sweet spot is about three to eight years old. And she talks about how you know a lot of parents are worried about this, but really it's not a thing to be worried about. And the other thing that I thought was very interesting is that in her research, she said that a lot, if not most of the kids, know that their imaginary friend is imaginary. So 
in conversations with them, uh, the the kids will say something along the lines of, well, well, you know, this is fake or, you know, this is make believe, right? But they they keep going with the the description and the fantasy of what they're doing with their imaginary friend. And the other place that her research is leading right now is imaginary versus virtual friends, which I thought was interesting. The more and more technologically advanced we get, that kids are sort of augmenting the idea of imaginary friends with virtual friends. And she talks about a uh, uh, an experiment done with a plush dog. So just like a little stuffed animal dog versus a virtual dog. And she said that the kids would be more entertained by the virtual dog. But if they wanted something that felt sort of protective and, and companionate, then they would go for the plush animal rather than the, the virtual. Um, and as you might suspect, and there's clearly a lot more of this in her book, but uh, one of the many aspects of imaginary friends has to do with kids expressing their true feelings through their friends. So you kind of hit on this a little bit earlier, but absolutely the idea is that that a child can let the friend be the the conduit for what it is they're actually feeling and express themselves through something that the friend does. And I think we definitely see that early on with Clara. Uh, of course, it well goes a little bit off the rails when we introduce Isabella as a real alien being. But yes, that is one of the things that's going on with Clara is Isabella expressing Clara's feelings for her. I wish this episode had taken place around a sun instead of in a nebula. The sun is a massive incandescent gas you know, a gigantic nuclear furnace, where hydrogen is built into helium, at a temperature of millions of degrees. I would imagine you're wondering what part of the show we're up to now. Well, this is the part where your podcast pals, John and Ken, who may or may not be real, uh, take apart this episode of Star Trek for messages, morals, and meanings, and try to decide uh, for themselves and all their imaginary friends... Uh, whether this episode actually holds up. I put the question to you, Mr. Champion. Imaginary friend, uh, does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I, I feel like I've already said what I'm about to say. And, and we, there are a few episodes where this comes up where we start to hear from people in the weeks leading up. And they're like, oh, man, you got this one coming up. Wow, good luck with that, eye roll. Mm-hmm. Um and and I, I get that, and, and I always say every week that we try to approach the episode without any of that in our minds. We really want to start from scratch and just take the episode on its own merits. So let me tell you the things that I like about this episode first, that, okay. that I really like about it. Um, Twilight Zone, and you know that I'm a fan of Twilight Zone, does all kinds of episodes about creepy kids or things that seem innocent that aren't. And I really dig those kinds of stories. I, I think that's kind of a, a cool trend or, or meme in that kind of show. Um, I also think that it's a cool idea to focus on someone that we don't know in an episode from time to time. Um, this probably would have been a terrible episode and too much too soon if this were about alexander having an imaginary friend just because he sort of became the kid on the enterprise after we lost wesley and wesley's a bit too old for this i hope 
Um, I also like that this is kind of a classic Star Trek story where the enemy is simply the misunderstood. Mm-hmm. So, and by doing that, you blend the A and B plots, obviously, but nicely. However, all those good motivations and all those right decisions don't completely come together here. Uh, I think we probably need more of our main cast, but I don't know how exactly you do that and still focus on the little girl. And and clearly the script had been written and rewritten so many times that I'm sure that they struggled with exactly that same question. Um, and even though this show has pieces of classic Trek in its message, that feels like too little too late. Um, we've seen aliens before that don't understand humans that judge us quickly and then have to be talked down. Nah. I, I don't mind those stories. Um, I, I really don't. Star yeah. Trek does them very well. Um, this just isn't one of the better ones. So I, I'll say this. It, it doesn't really hold up as, as a production. It doesn't hold up a, as a show. But it was definitely better than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. So I, I'll, I'll give it that. I, I think there's a real effort here. I think there are a lot of good ideas here, and I think there are a lot of good decisions that just didn't quite play out. And sometimes when you're making, you know, more than a hundred episodes of a TV show, um, not every element is going to fire on all cylinders. So, yeah, it, it's too bad. This this could have been better, or at least the ideas here could have been explored better. Um, but I'll, I'll give them at least some credit for the efforts behind it. How about you? What's weird is I actually liked it better on subsequent viewings than I did the first time uh, I watched it for this show. Um, mm. The first time it just felt way too after school special to me. And it is very after school special. And we can get into ways that it's very after school special in a moment. But it just it just yeah. way, way is. Um, didn't stop being that <laughs> the more I watched it, but maybe like once I realized just how after school special it was, I was able to kind of let go of that part um, mm-hmm. and have that not bother me quite as much. Once I know that it's it's a wasted hour of Star Trek, and it's not completely <laughs> wasted, but once I know that it's like okay, well, it turns out I don't like it, uh, but then I'm able to watch it more easily. I think in a way. Um, yeah, I gotta say, Brian Bonsall is terrible in this episode. He is just he is. <laughs> Terrible in this episode. He is really? horrible. He Wait, is you just, just, wow, you're, you're taking this out on Brian Bonsall. No, no, no. I'm not taking the episode out on him. I'm saying he's terrible in this episode. He's actually done some good acting before. And what's weird is the kid who plays Clara is fantastic. Sweet to the point of saccharin. Um, mm-hmm. The kid who played Isabella uh, does creepy amazingly well. Like, you know, oh, yeah. like well enough oh, that yeah. I'm checking under the bed later tonight. <laughs> right, right. And so I don't know if it is just everybody thought, well, okay, Brian's got this because he knows how to do this. Or if they really tried to direct him or if they just figured, well, he's on screen for five minutes. I mean, you've got good acting from kids here and you've actually had okay acting from Brian Bonsall before. Boy, just not in this episode. Um, to the point that I kind of wish it hadn't even been him. Honestly, because if it had been mm-hmm. some other bad actor kid, I'd be like, oh, who's the bad actor kid? But, you know, Brian Bonsall, come on, dude, seriously. <laughs> it's been like seven or eight years. I really feel like not enough attention was paid to his performance. I don't know why that is. Yeah. Um, you're hard on Worf. I'm hard on Alexander. Maybe that's okay. it. I don't All know. All right. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. the, the Nebula is gorgeous. Um, mm-hmm. TNG has Tinkerbell down. 
so, <laughs> I mean, with the exception of the Brian Bunsell thing, and, and also two weeks on that cup, um, I, I feel like the production was fine. I actually like the I like the I like the effects the um, the plasma string effects whatever that was. Yeah. yeah, it was quite good. It's a pretty great effect. So I mean, as far as the production itself goes, I would actually say it's good. Even the different lighting, like like when they're when they're looking out the window at that nebula, that was gorgeous. I mean, mm-hmm. both in Ten Ford and in the observation lounge when they're having the meeting. I mean, it really is. I mean, uh, production wise, I would say that this. I mean, and they found a really creepy kid, and no less creepy because they've dressed her like Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, it's like it's it's. I think I think production wise, you'd have to say yeah, it works, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. unless you're going to count the writing. <laughs> right. In which case, yeah, then you may have a bit of an issue. Um, it, it does hammer its messages, though. Uh, speaking of which, sir, do you want to say which ones you found? Sure. I mean, I, I think I kind of start off with uh, a message about peer pressure. Yeah. You know, um, you can almost end there as well. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Clara needs to not be so easily swayed by Isabella. And it's not such a bad thing to listen to adults every now and then. So, yeah, you know, just, uh, yeah, <laughs> just stop listening to the imaginary or real friend and, and not so bad if you have to bring this up with somebody in authority. Um, and of course, of course, of course, there is truth in Guinan's conversation with Clara that grown-ups sometimes lose the sense of play and imagination that they had as kids. And and that's too bad, you know? Um, that shouldn't be the case, but that is kind of a, a recurrent theme throughout the episode. And I also do like... I think that ending with Picard is really clunky just to to bring him in. Like, we have not had him involved in the storyline with Clara and Isabella at all. Right. Other than just his being aware of it. But then you just sort of very clunky bring him in at the end. Like, oh, okay, now I'm here to wrap it up and give the speech. So I don't like the way that plays out. But I do really like one line that he has. That there is no better criterion to judge them than how they treat children. Mm-hmm. And 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 particularly, he says us. You know, no no better criterion to judge us, meaning humans and the people aboard the Enterprise, than how we treat our children. Um, that's great. I, I think that's a a terrific truth that pretty much applies everywhere. So um, I, I thought that was a, a nice little nugget of wisdom to take away from this. Uh, how, how about you? Anything else in here that you picked up? Well, there was one thing that I don't know that it was. They weren't called on it, and so I kind of worry that it's there. I, I'll say what I'm going to say. I can't because I can't think of how to sort of ease into it. I think adults are let off the hook a little too easily in this episode. Jordy um, hmm. basically tells Sutter, "Hey, kids are tough. You be a workaholic, and that's fine. Just make sure that your kids know, you know, that you love them, and they'll be okay mm-hmm. because kids can take it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because one size fits all, apparently." And yeah, um, right. and and the thing that bothers me, there are a few things that bother me about this. Uh, Sutter is working with a counselor, right? Mm-hmm. So for goodness sake, turn to the workaholic whose best friend is a robot and whose best relationship <laughs> was with, oh my goodness, an imaginary friend. <laughs> I don't know that he's actually the person to turn to. And yet, and yet all this happens out of earshot. And, and okay, one size does not fit all. Maybe what Jordy is telling Sutter is okay advice for him to sort of, you know, assimilate and fold in with everything else that he's working with. Yeah. But it's just sort of presented as, well, here's truth about, you know, 
I grew up fine, so your kid will be fine too. Just do this one thing that my parents did, right? And I'm kind of yeah. like I'm, I was. I was a little. I really felt like it was letting letting the viewing public off the hook to an extent. You spend eighty mm. hours at work this week. That's okay. Just make sure your kid knows you love them, mm. and it'll be fine. Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that was a weird, yeah, that, that was a weird moment between them anyway, between uh, Ensign Sutter and Jordy, because I, I felt like, sure, Ensign Sutter is opening up a little bit about his personal life and asking, well, did you ever have any problems like this? And you went from ship to ship and you did all that. So Jordy's like, nope, no, I'm good. I had a, I had a great childhood. <laughs> so We don't even need to yeah. talk about it. That's how great my childhood was. In fact, why don't you get back to work? Yeah, totally good. Must be something wrong with your kid or what you're doing as a parent. I mean, so, honestly, uh, I would have felt I would have felt okay if it had been, you know, them having a conversation because Troy's done that before where she'll bring in somebody else. I mean, go back to young Jeremy Astor. She wanted to bring mm-hmm. Wes in mm-hmm. to talk about what it was like to lose a parent and to grow up in that, you know, in, in that um, environment. Or to grow up yeah. with that as as a defining moment in your life. So, I mean, for her to have had this discussion with Sutter and Jordy would have actually maybe been decent. Because at the end of it, she could say, so, maybe things will be fine. There are some things that we would want to watch out for. But, you know, maybe it'll all be, maybe this is not a worry. See how well your friend Jordy turned out. In theory, you know, I, I just I, that that part, honestly, it, it bothered me. The rest of it yeah. was very after school special, which, you know, I, I personally feel a little old for. Um, but I mean, it's uh, they're not they're not bad lessons. Mostly that that one just kind of uh, kind of rubbed me wrong. Mission log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at roddenberry.com. That'll lead you to all kinds of good information about Roddenberry Entertainment, the Roddenberry Foundation, all the cool things that they are cooking up at Roddenberry. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM. That's trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next week... I Borg. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Please. Get in touch with John and Ken. Operators are standing by, talking about their portrayal on the TV when an actress sits with a headset in outer space. End transmission.